Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the second Stock Slam of the year. Uh, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, the last few months have been grim for investors with their pessimism, rather overwhelming equity markets. Still, no matter how bad your portfolio looks, it's important to remember that there are worse things to lose than money, as the polling situation in Ukraine shows only too well. Um, so that's, I think that's a good way to look at things, really. Uh, now, looking back at the performance of the picks from the six slams last year, as you might expect, it's a sea of red uh, with all the portfolios down, or almost all of them down, from around minus 4% to minus 18, 13%, apart from the April picks. And of course, the only reason the April portfolio remains up is that it contains both John Menzies, which is subject to a takeover deal, so it's up 74%, and the amazing tech capital, which is still up 180%. So without those two, I think it'd be looking pretty sick as well. Now, the laggards, I have to say, have changed somewhat with, now I'll see if I can pronounce this, Sergutneft Gas, which is, as you might expect, some sort of Russian energy provider, down 90%. But it was speculative, and it's in Russia, so that's hardly surprising. Capital remains pretty sickly, down 58%. Along with driver down 54 percent, um, and that was subject to a profit warning recently. So yeah, not so good on those ones. Still, at this point, the presentation I should remind investors that uh, past performance is no guide to the future, and in the long run, stock markets do go up. I mean, the problem again is that bear markets keep grinding down until all positive hope has been extinguished. And I think it's probably fair to say that many kind investors have never lived through a proper bear market. Uh, but I've only really invested through one of them, um, and that was. Uh, pretty grim, I have to say, really. But, you know, in 2008, I was down 40% overall. But then in 2009, I was up something like 50%. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. Um, so hopefully we're not tempting fate tonight. Um, but we have an excellent lineup of speakers and companies uh, with some familiar names slamming and a number of new faces. So I think it'll be very exciting. So just quickly, I'm sure just about everyone knows how it works. But for anyone who doesn't, uh, each presenter gets three minutes to pitch their idea which goes in no time at all. Uh, we allow another three minutes for questions from the audience. Um, after that, I introduce the next speaker and we go through the whole process again. So all in all, we should be done at dust in about an hour um, and then we can all relax. Uh, one other thing I want to mention is that everyone presenting here is doing so in a personal capacity. So we're not giving share tips or advice. Um, with these are just investing ideas we're happy to share. Um, don't take it as anything more than that. In fact, you should assume that most presenters do own the shares they're talking about. And so, you know, they're talking their own book, um, you know, which is definitely the case with me. So I guess without further ado, I should kick off with the first pitch, Tiny Build. It's a, uh, what's the ticker, TBLD. It's a leading premium AA rated indie video games publisher and developer. Um, their portfolio of games includes more than 40 titles with a solid pipeline of more than 30 games to go to release. Um, now, we all know computer gaming is a huge and growing market. It dwarfs both film and music revenues, and is second only to the TV market. There's also a great deal of M&A activity in this space, with large gaming com companies buying smaller ones to acquire their IP. And this played out well with Codemasters and Sumo Group last year. So I like to keep an eye on this space, and it's relatively easy, as there aren't that many listed companies in the UK. So, you know, when Tinybook floated at 169p just over a year ago, it did increase the pool by one, which was nice. And at that time, investors, we were still pretty bullish back then, weren't we? And the shares rose over 70% in just a few months. Um, but since, since that peak, like a lot of other companies, it's been a long, slow slide down, 
with the shares drifting below 150p last week. Although in the last few days, they've shown uh, you know real strength going up. So this is also the financial performance. Um, the results were out recently, and FY21 turned out well with sales up 39% and basic EPS up 57%. There's both organic growth and acquisitions contributing, and that was ahead of expectations. And pleasingly, they don't mess around with adjusting earnings in the headlines either. But you can back out the IPO cost, which I've done, and you can see the EPS more than doubling year on year, which is pretty much in line with what Stocko shows. So they've done well since the IPO, no doubt about it. And going forwards, the company has a strategy of partnering with developers to, uh, to ensure the creation of long-lasting IP, which can be developed into multi-game franchises. And in practice, this involves a combination of buying smaller software teams and growing the games they bring on board. Uh, they call this an acquire strategy. So it works well because there's a deep pool of indie games out there and TinyBuild can kind of pick just those that have gained traction. So a, kind of a PE model, if you like, with TinyBuild adding capital to scale. Um, and a bonus is that acquire is bring on resources, either people, the developers and the testers. And that's a lot easier than actually trying to recruit people in the current market. Um, an example of a Keystone franchise is Hello Neighbor, which came out in 2017. It's been expanded to cover similar games, Secret Neighbor and Hello Engineer. Um, they've also taken the IP into graphic novels, which are apparently very good, merchandise and TV with an animated series in development uh, following a pilot. And finally, Hello Neighbor 2, I can say this right now, is set to launch tomorrow. So get ready with your pre-order. Um, this approach is diversifying sales and creating a back catalogue that delivers over 80% of the revenues. Um, now, something that I do need to mention here uh, for anybody who knows the company is Ukraine and Russia. TinyBuild emerged from Eastern Europe, and they have development studios in both of those places. And as Russia was building up troops in the border, they created a response plan and executed on the worst-case scenario when Russia actually invaded. And they evacuated all Ukrainian staff to somewhat safer Lviv. Um, and they've also, some people have managed to leave the country, and they're now working in Latvia and the Netherlands. And they TinyBuild have got an open studio in the Balkans. So they've handled this just as well as you could possibly imagine. And they've, and they've really looked after their staff. Um, and there's one other concern, which is the company is expanding quickly with operations around the globe. Um, and the management team could become overloaded, perhaps with quality and communication suffering. But they, as they say uh, in, a, in a recent um, kind of uh, report, they, they have a fairly hands-off approach um, with creative teams. And so that kind of helps reduce the, the load on the management team. And if you look at Glassdoor, um, all, almost all the employee reviews, reviews are very positive. And there's just one early one which is negative. So on the whole, they seem to be dealing with the growth growth of the company very well. Um, so really, from my perspective, I see TinyBuild as a as a solid kind of found one business with a long growth runway and kind of little exposure to the big bang releases, which can cause problems for lots of people. The shares have derated to a PE around 25. It isn't dirt cheap, but it's similar to peers like Team 17 and Frontier Developments. And with that, I'll take questions. Thank you, Damien. Um, first question, what did you think in the of the Outlook comment, there may be more jobs out there with better hours, more security and less stress? Does it indicate a worrying culture? Well, it's a fair point. I mean, games companies are notorious for setting kind of deadlines, releases, pushing people hard, um, essentially asking for unpaid overtime, that kind of thing. Do I think there's a problem there? No, I don't think there necessarily is a problem in the sense of the glass door reviews are very good. People say, yes, we work hard, but we're given a lot of creative freedom. Um, and could the pay be better? Yes, possibly. I think they're, certainly the offices in Ukraine and Russia have certainly helped on that front. They've, they're definitely cheaper locales than, let's say, the Netherlands or the US. Um, but I don't see any evidence to say that the, that the kind of the staff are 
kind of un, unhappy really with the environment. As someone still nursing a big loss on frontier developments, last year's big game tip, why is tiny build better? Okay, so I mean, as you know, frontier developments goes for the AAA titles. It goes for big bang releases, so they can be they can have a big title like was one of the Jurassic World ones, which have been development for several years. And when that releases, it's, it's it, that really has to succeed because they're they're betting big on that. Whereas tiny build, as I'm saying, they've got uh, something like sixty odd games around at the moment and they're developing a lot more don't have big bang releases they have lots of small releases and lots of different games and so they they there's diversification if you like there so they're not dependent on any one release being fantastic and what you also know is that with the hello neighbor which was their big franchise they've steadily reduced their dependence on that over the last five years and so i would say five years ago before the ipo'd they were they delivered they required quite a lot of revenues from that game but now that's down that and the franchises around it are down to maybe what 10 20 percent of revenue so i think they they work quite hard to to get away from the that depends on any single source of revenue and how do they differ from team 17 uh, it's a good point team 17 run a very similar strategy actually i mean they don't as far as i know run a, the exactly the same aqua high strategy which is bringing on board both the games and all of the staff and kind of letting them run the satellite operations um, but Team 17, it, it works in the same indie space. They, they work with AA games, um, really very similar. Uh, the only kind of, and I, I used to be investing in Team 17, it's a good company, but as people have obviously read lately, um, there have been some internal issues, I think, with management style and the way in which the company is perhaps being run according to people who work there. And so that's somewhat put me off uh, remaining invested there. And the person at the top, how big a stake do they have? That's a good question. It's substantial. Um, but if I can have quickly look at <laughs> Stockopedia, a trusty friend. Um, and did they sell down any at IPO? They haven't sold any. Oh, well, oh, IPO. Um, uh, I, I can't remember. I'd have to have a look at that. I mean, they probably have. I mean, the company itself raised um, something like $40 million um, out of the IPO um, for their kind of acquisitions. So, it wasn't just a case of insider selling. The company itself was raising money for its own purposes. Um, but yeah, uh, Alexander, the guy, the founder, still owns 38% of the company. Um, and actually, so, I mean, he's he's still heavily invested. Um, and so I don't I don't have any particular fears that he's going to be going anywhere soon. I mean, if you, if you listen to interviews with him, he's exceptionally um, enthusiastic about gaming and the company. Tremendous. Thanks very much, Damien. We've got lots more questions, <laughs> but we've run out of time. Back to you. Uh, as ever that is that's what happens so uh moving on we have charles ford coming up and he's going to talk about fire angel safety technology so yeah take it away charles thanks damien yes fire angel safety technology uh i first bought fire angel a long time ago back in november 2015 and then they were called spruages they manufacture and sell very neat smoke heat and carbon monoxide alarms now they also have a range of sophisticated wireless interconnected alarms used by professionals and specified by architects, etc. They were founded in 1998 as a startup and they aim listed in April 2014. The MD was then Nick Rutter. Uh, he's no longer MD, but he's still with the company, more on the techie side. I bought and sold several times, eventually giving up on them in 2019, having lost money. I now think they're highly investable 
I bought a first small tranche on the 28th of March, which is already up 42% in nine days. The future now looks much brighter, and the big catalyst to shareholder interest is the very recent transformational deal with a German company called Techem. Uh, phase one of this project, uh, is, which is paid for by Techem, has proceeded well, and they're now into phase two. And uh, say it's going very well, and Fire Angel will also be paid for their intellectual property. There is an important margin improvement plan, which is already driving up margins from 15.9% uh, in 2020 to 23.2% in 21, and they're aiming for 30% uh, in, uh, in the future. They still have manufacturing in China, but also in Poland and now carbon monoxide in uh, Canada. Supply chain has been an issue in 2020 and 21, as it has for many, um, but they met their targets in 2021, but could have done a lot better if they'd had slightly better supply chains. But I wouldn't say that was their fault. Now, this might seem a bit low tech, but I've got some figures here for you, but I won't uh, try and do that. Uh, basically to say that uh, the revenue has increased from 39.9 million in 2020 uh, to 43.5 million in 2021, and it'll be 69.8 million by 2024. Uh, I won't read all the figures, but the adjusted earnings per share goes from minus 4.5 to 2.4 by 2024. And finally, a, a free cash yield growing to 100% by 2024. I'm not normally a jam tomorrow sort of investor, but the market is already seeing this as a recovery stock and pricing it accordingly. I expect to hold it at least until 2024. And if there are no headwinds, uh, then I will build on my position uh, as it goes up. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Charles. So we've already got some questions. The first one is, there are no institutional investors on the Stockopedia site, and they're on the edge of the bankruptcy risk. How stable are they? Well, I would say they are stable. They did a, a, a fundraising uh, last year and uh, raised $9 million. So I think you'll find that the maybe Stockopedia is slightly out of date on that, but they, they have got... Uh, they've got quite a lot of cash now. And what about institutional investors or large um, major shareholders? Yeah, they're, and actually the institutional ones have been increasing their holdings. Downing, Venture Capital, Canaccord uh, has just increased by 6.3 million shares. Uh, Premier Asset Management um, have increased. Uh, with oh no, their, their individuals. But yeah, there are, there are some... Uh, institutional investors in there and actually just just recently the um the directors have been buying quite heavily thank you and there have been several share issues in recent years what's the likelihood of further issues i don't think that i could obviously can't guarantee anything on that front but i don't think there will be because um say they are quite well funded at the moment and how do you feel they differentiate themselves from the competition? I don't think there is a there's a massive amount of competition. They, they've got a, their products look very neat, and if you've ever seen them in B and Q, I don't know whether you you stalk B and Q or not, but uh, if you've ever been in there, they, they usually have a good stand with uh, plenty of good product on. 
it's a neat neat product and the most important thing now is that they are going for these uh but when they started all their alarms were sort of single alarms that you just put on your on your ceiling but uh they're now all integrated and wireless so um yeah good products and how are they achieving their improving margins by better management i believe i think that's part of their problems in the past have been possibly i've got to be careful what i say obviously uh, partly been uh, poor management at the top uh but maybe the the, the person at the top wasn't wasn't a uh, uh, a managing director he was more of a, a very technical person who you know was one of the people who founded the company but now i believe uh with connolly they've got a they've got a good guy at the, at the helm tremendous charles thank you very much we've got loads more questions but we've run out of time so damien back to you thank you charles um i had forgotten what a disaster this company has been having invested a number of years back before being hit with a profit warning they they seem to specialize in profit warnings and they're very good at it so um yeah you are a braver man than i am charles um but maybe fortune will favor the brave so we shall see and here we have the inimitable edmund shing he's going to talk about anglo pacific away you go edmund thank you damien yes today's company anglo pacific code apf what is it a commodity royalty company so you have exposure to commodities and income growth market cap 380 million pounds at the current price for around 180 pence seven points those who have heard me before know i love commodities i think we're in a super cycle so unsurprisingly this is a commodity company the theme here to be uh, to invest in a company as an inflation hedge it has basically exposure to renewable energy demand for battery metals and to precious metals and to uranium nuclear and even some coking coal in the short term Secondly, what are the attractions of a royalty company as opposed to simply uh, a miner, commodity miner? Well, a royalty companies such as Anglo Pacific are exposed to revenues from commodities without the risk of cost increases. So they just take revenue and they multiply it by the price of the commodity. That's the exposure they get because what they've done, they have financed the mining company, and the mining company, in return for that financing, has to deliver. A certain amount of whichever commodity it is, whether it be copper, gold, uranium, whatever it is, to the company Anglo Pacific for a number of years under contract. And then, of course, what Anglo Pacific then is gets that revenue, that amount of um, the commodity every year for the set number of years, and then they resell it at the current price. So you just get the revenue stream times the price. Thirdly, what commodity exposure are you buying? Well, they have at the moment 15 royalty and streaming related assets so you have diversified commodity exposure to a number of commodities cobalt nickel uranium vanadium copper precious metals iron ore and coking coal fourth point geographic exposure is well diversified but most importantly 99 percent of their portfolio is located in well-established mining jurisdictions nowhere to dodgy which of course is very important when it comes to mining companies particularly when we see what's happened to russia most of their assets are in Australia, Canada, Brazil, and Chile. In terms of commodity prices, they are enjoying very strong commodity price rises over the last year. Cobalt up 58% year on year, which is now 50% of their portfolio exposure. Coking coal up an amazing 252% year on year. Uranium up 89% year on year. Nickel plus 96% and so on. The commodity basket overall, according to the company, is up 43% 
over the year to date since the 1st of January. So that's quite incredible. And unsurprisingly, the share price, as you can see on that chart, has reacted to the strong momentum in their commodity price basket. Six point strong growth, EPS growth is ahead from ramping up of recent acquisitions to full production. A December 21 number was plus 60% versus a year before. Net asset growth is up 20%. I believe it's cheap at under nine times forward PE. And the last point, you should get a forward dividend yield of around 4.5% and expect the boost to equity value from deleveraging post recent acquisitions. So you get low growth exposure to battery energy transition metals and uranium boosted by what I think is a commodity price super cycle over the medium term. And I'm done. Thank you, Edmund. Um, the earnings per share is projected to fall in 2023. Why is this? Well, look, analysts are guessing what's going to happen to commodity prices. And as we all know, analysts are a bit, how can I put this? The technical languages are a bit crap at forecasting two years out, okay? So I think <laughs> if you think they could even forecast a year out, you, you're doing well, but two years out, forget it. So frankly, I don't. I think that's just what we call a reversion to mean. They expect things to go back to where they were, but I believe we're in a super cycle. I believe we have massive shortage of all of these metals. If you look at stockpiles, they're at multi, like ten-year lows. And you know, energy transition is the theme with gas and oil prices where they are. We're going to have to go even faster. And there was a large director sell-off this year. Um, can you comment on that? <laughs> I mean, I, I think what we find there, I mean, I don't know what was in their minds, particularly, you never know with director buys and sells what is in their minds sometimes. But I do think that, uh, to be fair, Anglo-Pacific has gone through a long period of not going anywhere very quickly, in fact, falling. So I think they probably were just relieved to see a bit of a price rise and wanted to get some of their money out. But that is not necessarily a bad thing, frankly. Tremendous. Thank you. There's been a significant increase in net debt. What's been the cause of this? acquisitions. I mean, as I said, they buy royalty streams, they're lending money. To lend money, they have to have the money. So obviously, they can lend off their balance sheet, they can lend their equity, but they can also lend via debt. So they have recourse to debt, which then they use as the financing for the mining companies. And that's what they've done. They've made a lot of acquisitions. And as I said, Tamsin, these are going to ramp up to production. So they're not fully contributing to earnings now today, but they will contribute more and more to earnings over the next year, two years. And that debt will come back down, of course, because not all of that, some of it will go to pay dividends, but they've committed to getting that net debt down pretty quickly with the, with the big increase in free cash flow they expect to have coming forwards. Thank you. Um, the question says, if I remember, the revenues and profits come largely from the coking coal, coal and its price, especially in very recent times. Even they expect coal profits to go down significantly. How confident are you about the plan and the forecast to replace that with um, one with the other? Well, that, that's, that's already happening, Tans. And so, as I said, that's why they've made these acquisitions, the idea being to diversify away from coal. Uh, they already are out of thermal coal. There is no thermal coal. It's only coking coal, which is used to make uh, stainless steel. And, and so used to make steel from iron ore. So it's still, um, they've got away from thermal coal already and they're reducing the reliance on coking coal very quickly through these new acquisitions. Again, much more focused on cobalt, nickel, copper and vanadium, for instance. Thank you. And do you have a target price? 
Well, it's 180 pence today. Uh, I don't do target prices, but if I were to look at the long-term chart, which is what I like to do, 226 is the next obvious resistance. And if you want to get excited, then look at some more like 320 plus. Uh, that's the long-term resistance. So there's plenty of upside just to get back to where it's been a few years ago. Many thanks, Edmund. We've got loads more questions, but we've run out of time. Thanks very much. Thanks, Edmund. Um, a great pictures ever. I, I do like listening to your pictures. Um, and a great company. Um, you know, inflation is providing a growth tailwind. And I mean, I can see royalty income acts to reduce commodity price with volatility. So, yeah, I, I think I'll take a deeper look at it. But thank you. And now we have uh, Lillian Nandy who's going to talk about India Capital Growth Fund. So where you go, Lillian? Hi, I've picked India Capital Growth Fund, ticker symbol IGC, listed on the main market of the London Stock Exchange in 2005 and trading on a discount of minus 16. It's an investment trust with a sole focus on India, with a market cap of around 100 million. It focuses predominantly on small and mid caps and has 32 holdings in its different sectors of the Indian economy. Risks probably relate to the fact of interest rate rises in the US, which may lead to a little bit of money outflow from the fund, but the Indian fundamentals remain great. Why do I like this share? Well, it is a play on India with strong fundamentals. One point often mentioned is the strong dem demographic di dividend of India, with 50% of its population being under 25. India is now at an inflection point, with four or five years of regulatory reforms behind it. The focus of the country and the government is on growth. The IMF predicts that India will be the fastest growing economy in the next two years, 2022-2023, with growth of 9.5% and 8.3% respectively. And it also predicts that in tw by 2025, it will have the fifth largest economy in the world. Secondly, it's the entrepreneurial culture and the good education. Strong focus on education with India producing highest number of maths, physics, computer science and engineering graduates in the world. A number of these graduates have gone on to head some of the most prestigious companies in the world, such as Google, Microsoft, Adobe Acrobat, and even Novartis. Also, um, India has a lot of unicorns. It has 94 unicorns in total. Um, they were all in the, you know, they all came about in the last three years. And there's an investment by the government also of maybe 1.4 trillion dollars in infrastructure in the next four to five years of a size which is comparable to the United States of America. And the current political ideology is really focusing on raising the living standard for all. Now, thirdly, India Capital Growth has Man is managing or will be managing to harness the potential of this. It has exposure to different sectors of the Indian economy. It's very active with about five analysts on the ground in Mumbai. About 10, 11 of its companies were added, 25% um, of the portfolio during the pandemic where IGC took advantage of the vol volatility and the low valuations. And these companies that it added um, you know, are in the green economy, in the economy, relates to economic recovery, the de-risking of the supply chain movement from China to India, um, and the digitization which is in the future. Um, India Capital Growth Fund has produced about 15% um, annual returns for the past 10 years, about 160% um, for the past two years. And going forward for the next five years, I think it will be doing pretty well. So I urge you to consider it. Thank you very much. Lillian, thank you very much indeed. So it has had a stellar performance since June 20. Can it keep growing? 
I believe that it can keep growing. Yes, um, there's a lot of drivers to actually um, making it keep growing. For example, now we could say that the reforms of um, regulatory reforms by the government has now stopped, and so it's focusing in growth. Um, the government has announced a sort of a 1.4 trillion package or pipeline of infrastructure projects. The government is making wealth creation a lot easier and providing a lot of incentives. Um, there's a very good digital um, ecosystem in place in the public sector. Um, and there's a lot of sort of unmet um, need. And you can see by, for example, how entrepreneurial the culture is with the growth of about 44 unicorns in the last year and it's an underserved market. So I think there is plenty of headway for growth in the next five years. Thank you. And how does it compare with JP Morgan India Investment Trust in terms of performance discount and portfolio? Well, if you look at, say, the performance of IGC over the past um, two years, and those of JP Morgan, for example, I think JP Morgan has, um, sorry, IGC is about 160%. I think, um, JP Morgan is somewhere between, my memory serves me correct, between 50 and 70%. Um, I think JP Morgan is more focused maybe on the large caps, so to speak. It does have others, but I think it is more large cap, whereas um, IGC is more predominantly mid and small caps. And that is probably where they believe where the growth is. And I think even JP Morgan have acknowledged that the growth is more towards the small and the mid caps as well. Um, I think maybe, possibly, IGC has a smaller sort of team. So that, you know, and they're owned by a sort of one company which is totally focused on India. Thank you. And do you know very much about the fund manager? Oh God, I can't remember what his name is, but I have met him and um, at shows. And um, and I have listened to him speak a couple of times, and I know that he has lived actually in India himself, I think for about nine, ten years in Mumbai. So he is very um, familiar with India itself. Thank you. And which segments is it focused on? It is sec focused on all segments of the Indian economy. Um, particularly, it has a large... Um, you know, it has, let's say, about, I think, 20% holdings in financials, for example. Um, it, it's got, yeah, 20% um, financials, healthcare. It's got a, lo a lot in consumer discretionary. Um, real, um, so I think the, 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 the tops are sort of consumer discretionary and financials but and, and banks. But it does have things in healthcare, real estate, utilities, um, gas, green energy um, across the board, really. Great. Thanks very much indeed, Lily. And we've run out of time. Loads more questions, but we've got no more time. So thanks very much. Damien, back to you. Cool. Yeah, thank you very much, Lillian. Um, I do like a good investment trust, especially when it's on a double digit discount. Um, I mean, being greedy, I might like to see it head towards 20%, which is where it's been before. But really, yeah, there's a decent margin of safety of the current share price. So yeah, interesting. Um, and now up, we have a Darcy Andrews who's going to talk about Purple Bricks. Where you go, Darcy. Thank you, Damien. Purple Bricks, <clears throat> the most recognisable name in estate agency, listed on AIM in December 2015 with 240 million shares at a pound. By July 17, the share price hit £5. 
by 2019, it was back to a pound. On the 7th of March this year, just one month ago, it hit its all-time low of 15p. So what happened and what's the situation now? Well, Purple Bricks was formed by Michael and Kenny Bruce with a vision to disrupt the industry with low fees to sellers. This will be made possible by having no physical premises, clever use of IT, and having self-employed agents and the customers paying the fee up front. The company grew rapidly, opening operations in America and Australia, despite at that time having not reached profitability. Fast forward to the present, and the USA and Australian operations have gone, leaving the company to concentrate on the UK market. The company has had a torrid time. In November 2021, it issued a profits warning, which knocked the share price back 32%. Then in December, there was an 18% fall as a result of an error on the letting side of the business. This exposed the company to the possibility of millions of pounds of declines from tenants. The recent 2021 second half results showed the company to be loss making again. So what's going to drive the share price up and how long is this going to take? Well, Several steps have been taken to improve performance. It has moved from a self-employed agent model to staff being fully employed. This, it is believed, will be, bring considerable benefits. Secondly, it is now offering a money-back guarantee on the upfront fees if no sale is made. In addition, Vic Darvey, the CEO since 2019, has resigned. His replacement, Helena Marston, formerly Chief Operations Officer, was due to take the reins on Monday, However, this has been delayed as a result of aim market due diligence checks. At the recent low of 15p, I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that there was some good to be had here. After all, the company has no debt and holds cash of £57 million. It is perhaps the most recognisable estate agency band with a brilliant, simple business model. It has a clear marketing strategy to reach 10% market share versus its current 4% with an average revenue of £1,800 per instruction. As far as I can see, no additional infrastructure is required to grow revenues and profits. Staffing levels are currently strong at 95% and ongoing recruitment is encouraging. It is worth noting the performance of others in the sector such as the property franchise group Belvoir and Foxtons all show a profit and have healthy KPIs. It demonstrates that profits are there to be had. Purple bricks are in the right market at the right, with the right tools. They now need to start using the positive effect. The tipping point for me has been the significant director purchases a fortnight ago, which have increased investor confidence and nudged the share price upwards in recent days. The risk reward balance and timing here look very favorable. Many thanks, Darcy. So question here, when will it start to turn a profit? And what is the revenue inflection point to turn a profit? Right. Well, if if you look at the uh, 2021 second half uh, accounts, they have had some major one-off expenses there. Um, so of the loss it made, a considerable number of amounts of that was, was one-off. Uh, for example, the cost of going from uh, the self-employed to the employed model, there was a big tax liability, and the mistake on the um, <clears throat> on the letting side of the business cost, um, I think they put a £3.6 million provision from, for that. So I would expect in the next in the next six months uh, for the 
simply by not having those one-off costs for them to get much closer to profitability if we take the view that they they have now got the uh, the new process in place with the employed team i think that will get us close to profitability uh, in the next six months if that's the case uh, that will be very significant and push the share price uh, quite favorably in my view Tremendous. Thank you. And aren't you worried that the new CEO has previously been bankrupt? (laughs) Uh, This question was obviously going to come. There's two possibilities here. Um, There's a question mark there, isn't there? And I'm I'm surprised and impressed that the the share price, that the market hasn't hasn't hit the, the share price very hard because of this. So the two possibilities are, she puts that behind her and gets and gets into the role and gets on with the job, which I think will happen. And I can only think that at the moment she's working very hard to you know to make things move forward. Uh, you know when she does get behind the wheel. The second possibility is that she won't make it and somebody else will take the role. Now there is an argument that says that the market might like that. And, and I suspect that that some of the current enthusiasm is based on the fact that that might happen. And what's the annual cash burn with the staff now full time? I'm not sure what, what it's going to be, but it's changing because it has been in the last six months, it was absolutely enormous with the one-off costs that I mentioned, uh, and that will reduce very significantly. So again, one of the reasons I think the timing is good here is that the, there's been an absurd amount of one-off costs in the last in, in the last year um and unless they're very unlucky and have an, another major uh, mess up like with the with the, the letting situation the the cash burn will include improve considerably so there's a lot of reasons here that, that this will go from looking like a, a you know a bunch of disasters to looking like something very very strong given the very simple business model that they've got and the the very recognisable position in the marketplace. Many thanks, Darcy. We've got loads more questions, but we've run out of time. So I'll hand back now to Damien. Thanks a lot. Well, no, thank you, Darcy. Another brave pick for the property market looked like it's peaked and interest rates on the rise. Um, But, you know, the share price could have all the bad news priced in. I mean, it's... uh, you know, you can. What, what other bad news could there be, really? So, yeah, interesting. Although I must admit, I do rather prefer Belvoir in that place. But hey, um, up next we have Robert Gordon, who's going to talk about Oakley Capital Investments. I'm going to talk about Oakley Capital Investments (OCI). It's Bermuda registered. Oakley is a private equity company which specialises in European mid-market companies in technology, consumer, and education. The company's fact sheet on the AIC website gives more information. There's also a webinar on the 10th of March, which you can watch. If you go to the LSE or investigate, they give you, tell you how to get to it. <clears throat> There's also published research on the company. Also, you can find details of that on the LSE website. Management considers the recent record of 19.2% compound will continue for two reasons. The age of the portfolio is 3.6 years compared with the normal hold period of three to five years. And then on exit, the recent average uplift against carrying value has been 50%. If that continues in the next two years, asset value will increase from 538 pence to 764 pence. 
The current discount to NAV is 22.4%, which is much higher than other PE companies with similar five-year track records, which are sub-10%. I expect the discount to decrease, resulting in a 50% increase in the share price over the next two years. The track record is good, 35% over one year, 100% over three years, 149% over five years. That compares well with the uh, private equity uh, sector in the UK. There is a policy to reduce the discount through share buybacks and to move from half yearly to quarterly uh, valuations. The next valuation will be in April, uh, and I would expect that the, uh, the asset value will have gone up in that time, and therefore that the uh, NAV discount will increase. Um, if there's no change in the discount over two years, the share price would increase by 42%. If the discount moved to 20%, it would go up 46%. And if it went to 15%, which I think is more realistic, it would, the, the price would increase by 56%. If there's no change over the next year, the discount would rise to 35%, which is nearly the highest as it ever, it's ever been, uh, which was 40% at the height of the COVID peak in 2020. Growth over the last year has been driven by EBITDA, up 28%. Uh, I think that the regulators would classify these shares as medium to possibly high risk. In my view, that would be wrong. I think this is low risk. I think this is a very good core holding in an ISA and a very good start for a junior ISA for your kids. That's it. Tremendous. Thanks very much, Robert. Um, how will inflation and rising interest rates hit the portfolio? I'm not sure they will at all. Um, uh, There's a wide spread of investments. And let me give you a couple of examples, okay? The two, two companies were highlighted in the recent presentation. Actually, well, there's more than two, but two are a decent size. One is IU Group, which is a German university. It's the largest holding, 13.6% of the total. And last year, the intake of students was up 34%, and EBITDA was up 68%. It's growing very, very rapidly. The other one is Wishcard, which is a consumer gift card. It's the four... The fourth largest contributor to NAV growth last year, 10p, uh, based on revenues going up by 68%. These are growing very, very rapidly. It doesn't cost you a lot more money to make a gift card. The money in the gift card is actually not people, is people are actually not using it. Actually, I think they should buy Appreciate Group in the, U in the UK, which I also hold, APP which is on a much lower rating. <laughs> Thank you. And what's the average discount to NAV um, going back over the last two years or five years? Uh, it has been 40. Looking at, looking at it, it looks most of the time it's been 15 to 20 and once or twice it's been slightly less than 15. But the record is better than most. Well, it's better than average, right? And it's nearly as good as the best ones. Uh, which is HG Capital, and that's on a uh, that and Dunedin on discounts less than ten percent. Thank you. And where are the major investments geographically, and which sectors and the size of the companies? Okay, they're all mid-market. They're all in Europe. They're all in technology, consumer, and education. 
And why is the share price expected to increase without a change in the discount? Uh, because asset value, uh, investment companies are valued on an, uh, and this is an investment company, private equity is, is investment. They are valued on uh, discounts and or premiums to their asset value. So if the asset value goes up and the premium or the discount stays the same, it will go up in line with, um, uh, with, the, with the growth in asset value. And if it does grow at 19%, and they were saying that they think it will because of the age of the portfolio, et cetera, um, then you can get a 42% increase in NAV over the next two years. So if everything is the same, your share price will go up 42%. The discount narrows, it'll go up by more. Uh, it's just a really nice, I think, low risk, lowish risk, long-term investment. It, I, it, as far as I'm aware, it's only had one down year since it was launched. And that was some, that when, the, when the asset value fell from 201p to 200p. Many thanks, Robert. We do have more questions, but we've run out of time. But thanks very much. And back to you, Damien. Sure. No, thank you, Robert. Um, I actually hold OCI to give me some exposure to private equity, and I can't argue with their performance over the last year. Very good. Um, and I mean, holding some PE just seems to make sense to me if you're interested in small growth companies, since so many of them are off market. Uh, so, yes, a nice pick. So next up, we have uh, the people's favourite, Paul Scott, who's going to talk about Beaks Financial Cloud. So where you go, Paul. Hello, everyone. Beaks Financial Cloud. Um, market cap, 116 million at 177 pence per share. That includes new shares in a placing this week, yesterday. So the total is now 65 million shares. It's, I think, the best small cap growth company that I've found in the last six months. It's my third largest person holding, and I'm probably going to increase it to my first largest, but it's risen 40 or 50% in recent weeks, so I'm hoping for a pullback. It provides cloud connectivity to global financial exchanges. Um, <clears throat> this is a long-term investment idea, not a trade. I've held for years, but I'm scaling up my position now because the key point is there's been a step change in growth. So um, the rapid rise in order intake, for example, in the last quarter, uh, it was three times the re previous record quarter for order intake. These are recurring revenues, typical contracts of four to five years, and follow-on orders um, come along from tier one customers. For example, the first million pound contract has now grown to six and a half million per annum and expect many more to follow. The CF CFO said on a recent webinar, quote, deal sizes we're quoting for dwarf what we've done before, end of quote. Uh, the 25 million and 30 million uh, revenue forecasts are probably going to be thrashed. The company's already made it clear it expects to beat those. There'll be numerous upgrades. These are massive global markets. Now, I had a Q&A with management, the CEO, this week, and I asked him about competition. And he said there really isn't much at all in the Beaks space. Uh, Beaks knows this niche inside out and has 10 years track record. <clears throat> and it can't be replicated overnight. And technically, it's very challenging. So Beaks is really in a very special sweet spot, I think, which is why I think this share is so exciting. <clears throat> I also, excuse me, I asked him why is growth suddenly accelerated? It was, it was going in a sort of you know, steady line up. It's now going sort of exponential. And he said, <clears throat> the market has come to us. Eight or nine years ago, the financial sector wasn't ready for cloud. Now it is. 
um, finance organizations are slow adapt adopters, but are now, because it's business critical systems, that they're now adopting Beaks, uh, which is pretty much the only, only provider in its niche. He concluded by saying Beaks is in a very nice position. The ultimate exit here is going to be a trade sale or some sort of sale of the business, uh, which the CEO has publicly said he expects to be for multiples of the current price. Now, <clears throat> it's recently done a placing uh, yesterday, only a 3% discount, £15 million. Pounds. That was bigger than I expected. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what the CEO said is that there's up to a year lead time on buying servers and connectivity equipment. So they're stocking up ready for um, big order intake from a very, very serious pipeline. It was only 16% dilution. Uh, the, the CEO has trimmed his stake several times, but still has 38%. The shares are not cheap, but it's all about stellar growth and it should be a much bigger business in the future. That's it. Thanks, Paul. And um, going back to the um, CEO sell yesterday, that isn't quite so bullish. Do you have any comments on that? Well, it has to be seen in the context of the fact that he still owns 38%. So he banked two eight million. Uh, he's now got a 12-month lock-in on his remaining shares. I don't have a problem with, 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 with founders top slicing for, you know, safeguarding their own portfolio purposes. The bottom line is he's still got 38% and that matters far more than anything else. And it was only um, the CEO sale ranked behind the placing and the open and the um, primary bid. It was only if there were over applications that uh, that he then uh, got some money, which I think was, was pretty, uh, uh, you know, was a fair way of doing it. Thank you. And it seems to be highly capital intensive. It's is it easy to win con? Oh, it's easy to win contracts if you pay the customers capex. Surely the growth is going to require massive share issuance. Well, I think that's been resolved already this week with the fifteen million pound placing. It's not. It's not massive capex. It's it, it, it and and the capex in building this network of um so it's not related to any individual customer um uh, you, you know they're connecting now i think about 60 financial strangers all over the world so that once that capex is done they can serve multiple clients from from the equipment the ceo told i did ask him about capex he said it's basically servers and uh connect connectivity sort of boxes or equipment or wiring or whatever he said it's 80 percent growth 20 percent maintenance capex Thank you. And what's the potential market size? It has large clients and no competitors. Can it really grow revenue many multiples? Yes, I think so. I mean, I haven't got a fit. I can't put a figure on that. But the beauty of it is this company, this is why I like this stock so much. It's just in a sweet spot where it's got the right service. There's not really anyone else offering this. It would take years to replicate it. And the financial, the major financial organizations i think they mentioned potentially five thousand clients well the tier one clients you're talking multi-million pounds contracts per annum so i mean really this they're in an amazing um place i think which is why i'm so enthusiastic about this uh, share so big i wouldn't be you know i think you can look at this and say 50 to 100 million revenues in a, in, in a, just a few years very easily maybe maybe a lot more and um, what do you see as the main risks I suppose, well, I, I'm not an expert in IT, but the obvious one is hacking, isn't it? And the system's falling over, being compromised. This is, this is mission critical, business critical 
service for the clients. So if it all falls apart and they get hacked and all the rest of it, that would be a disaster, wouldn't it? So uh, that's clearly the biggest risk, I would say. Tremendous. Thank you very much. We've got loads more questions, but we've run out of time. Paul, that was tremendous. Thank you. Damien, back to you. Thanks, Paul. A lot of fun as ever. Um, I must admit, I haven't looked at Beaks for a couple of years, um, and I'm actually quite impressed with the progress being made, although earnings are still awfully volatile. So you've got to have a fairly strong stomach, I'd imagine. Uh, now up, we have Dio here, who's going to talk about cars. Off you go, Dee. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Dio here. There's five things I look for in a stock pick. Uh, a simple story, good cash flow, limited downside, potential for a 30 to 50 percent rise and all confirmed by a chart pattern. My stock pick is Cars Group, which at 150p has a market value of 142 million. On the stock ranks, uh, quality, value and momentum are all around 70. And overall, the stock rank is 84 and is classified as a super stock. So what do they do? Well, Cars invests in the agricultural and engineering sectors. It has three businesses. The Agricultural Supplies Division manufactures animal feed and it distributes farm machinery and fuels through a network of, uh, of rural stores providing a one-stop shop for the farming community. The Speciality Agriculture Division manufactures feed supplements. The Engineering Division designs and manufactures bespoke equipment, including robotic and remote, remote handling equipment and also provides technical services for the nuclear, oil and gas and defence industries. A recent RNS stated that whilst each division had a strong market position and considerable potential for growth, they have little synergy with each other and so the board are starting a strategic review. So why do I think the price will rise? Well overall the group is currently valued about 11 times earnings and the company has said it wants to split up the group effectively. So the Agricultural Supplies Division, which is about 30% of profits, uh, the peer group there trades in about a PE of 12 times. All of these groups are expected to increase their profits and their share trends, generally speaking, are upwards. So the prospects for this division looks good. The Agricultural Supplements Division, which is about 45% of profits, so there's no real peer group here, but if you take food development companies, uh, Animal Care and Pario as such, they can trade in PEs of 20 to 30 times. So let's say this division was sold for say 15 times earnings. That would add over 20% to the valuation. The engineering division, which is 25% of profits, the peer group there trades in about 16 times. So if this division was sold for say 14 times earnings, that would add 10% to the valuation. Additionally, I think overall the group trades at a discount because it's a bit of a mismatch. So I think any disposal will increase the share rating by a further five to 10%. Peter Page is the chairman and he was the previous ex-CEO of Devro. So I think the downside is protected because the company is reassuringly dull operating in growing business sectors. It's well backed by assets, brands, and dominant market positions. There's a 3.5% dividend yield and a pension surplus, which is worth 7% of the market value. So overall, as I see it, this investment is much better than cash for the next few months. I see limited downside, possible 20 to 30% upside, and a revaluation catalyst that's due in three weeks' time. The chart is also in a steady uptrend, indicating there are a few sellers at the moment. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dee. So first question, farming dependence. What's the effects of Australian and potentially US trade deals? Oh, there's a big one. <laughs> um, I think sort of there's two ways of, uh, of looking at this, sort of maybe without answering the question directly. So basically, these guys are, are very dominant, very uh, well-known in their industry. 
Um, so you've got to assume that sort of that will continue and that there's value for them operating that industry. That there will be farming, there will be food, this will be happening. And they basically help farmers improve productivity or uh, get through their business. So I think they've got longevity, whatever the external conditions are for farmers, because they're there to help farmers. Thank you. And the share price has pretty much been the same since 2013. What makes you think that now is the time to invest? There's an RNS saying that we think the company isn't valued like it should be, and we're going to do a strategic review. I'm not saying it, the board are saying it. And is the low operating margin a worry? Well, overall, there's a low margin. That's in the effectively the distribution business. But the other two businesses, the engineering business is touching 10% margins, but the speciality food business, it's on 15% margins. So I think that question sort of highlights the, the fact there's an opportunity here because people look at car, they might look at the headlines on uh, Stockopedia and say, this is a low margin business, I'm not interested. But exactly like the board are saying, there's two divisions within this. Uh, one is high growth in food supplements. The other is a specialist engineering business which is servicing the nuclear industry, the oil and gas industry, the defense industry, UK-based, involved in robotics. That is a sexy operating area. Thank you. And are all businesses for sale, or will they keep one and develop it? They left that bit out of the RNS and saying exactly what they were going to do. Um, so, you know, I... I uh, I think on any scenario, sort of, presumably they will hold uh, one of the businesses back uh, with sort of two being sold off. But I mean, that's obviously just my guesswork. Um, the opportunity for me here is I see it as limited downside. If they sell any of the businesses, it will be at a premium to the, the current rating, uh, which will just then be uh, a catalyst for the share price to rise a bit higher. Thank you. And final question quickly. Agriculture's facing a huge cost squeeze with fertilizer, etc. Will they be squeezed? So they have an advantage because some of their products help improve productivity. So uh, when you've sort of got those squeeze uh, coming, then their product effectively adds on more value. Um, so, you know, it's an opportunity uh, for them. Dee, thanks very much indeed. We do have more questions, but we've run out of time. Thanks very much. Damien, back to you. Cool. Thank you, Dee. Um, I remember looking at cars a few years ago uh, when the share price was off, pretty much exactly where it is now. Um, you know, it seems to be one of those perennially kind of interesting shares that never seems to go anywhere. So, you know, a strategic view is obviously the way to go. Um, you know, if they can if they can derive value from splitting the company, then, yeah, that would, sounds like a, a great bit of potential there. And up with our final uh, presentation this evening is uh, Shakti Tipathy. who's going to talk about Gore Street Energy Storage Fund. So where you go, Shakti. Hi, everyone. Yes. So uh, you don't often find a stock that's... Uh, you know, green and growing and uh, with income as well. So this was my favorite uh, since I invested, uh, uh, I think, uh, last year, um, last year, early last year. Um, so it's been uh, it's been going great so far. Um, only downside I've seen is uh, it does, low, uh, I think, more than you expect uh, placings. Uh, in in between, so last year it placed, it did a place. I think it did four or three 
three placings. Yeah, last year it did three placings, and that's when you where you find these dips, occasional dips. Uh, but uh, it, it seemed that I, I was getting upset when it when the when the dip like that. But uh, um, I find it's actually a good thing. Uh, then you can buy more. So I did. I did uh, take up at least uh, one more. I started off taking up one placing, and then I. And I added more in the second placing, so I think it was a <laughs> lucky, lucky decision. <laughs> I don't often see my share price growing like that uh, after buying. Um, so, uh, so its revenue uh, um, is a bit complicated. Uh, uh, I think it makes revenue uh, with the energy fluctuation. So uh, it stores the store. It, it it stores all the um, energy from the renewables and in, in batteries, and then. Uh, I think when the grid needs it, uh, it does supply demand uh, analysis and, and then uh, makes money through that way. It's a complex process, but uh, I, I leave it to them. <laughs> I trust the management how, how it makes the money, but it looks like it's making money. It's now is uh, net asset values growing, uh, has been growing uh, since it uh, IPO'd in 2018. Um, uh, and uh, I'm very pleased with it so far. Yeah. Um, um, and its uh, debt level is very low as well. Uh, as you can see, if you scroll down, um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't have debt. It doesn't have any debt at all. Um, um, and it pays a massive dividends. It uh, aims to pay 7% 7, 7 of its NAV uh, as dividend and at least 7P. So, um, so that's another plus point uh, for me when I started investing. Um, um, and it's uh, currently it's doing another placing, so uh, through primary bid, and that's where that's how I invested. Uh, primary bid is great. Um, uh, I don't have to pay costs. I don't like paying costs when buying shares. It's okay to pay costs when you're selling, but not buying. So um, that's why I like about it. So investing th through primary bid <laughs> and making it uh, making the share price grow. That's that's the way to be. Um, uh, and its P ratios. Uh, quite nice as well. Uh, I hope uh, Stockopedia would uh, make the revenue and income, uh, revenue profit. Uh, I don't know, it's not showing um, as you expect, but I'm not too worried yet. Okay, that's me, thank you. Thanks very much, Shakti. Um, who are the company's main competitors? It, it claims to be the only listed, uh, right, listed um, energy storage fund. But I think there there is uh, there are some unlisted ones. So yeah, I think uh, Gresham is another energy storage uh, fund, uh, as far as I know. Um, yeah, so there might be company, but they are a leading leading uh, leading company, leading fund. Yeah. And what's the what are the figures for um, revenue, which don't seem to be showing, and what's the potential for growth in revenues? So it, it so as I'm saying, it gives it to the uh, so makes money through uh, sending energy to the grid and getting uh, income that way. So its profit profits are rising because energy prices obviously is uh, continuing to rise, which is which is a great thing. Um, yeah. So its uh, its revenue is 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 complicated as I was saying there. Yeah, but it's uh, but it does make plenty of profits with the energy prices growing. Yeah. And do you expect the dividend to increase? Uh, yes, uh, I think uh, the last uh, half yearly report, uh, I think they the, the mentioned uh, there were the, uh, the dividend could increase. Yeah, but uh, currently the aim is 
to be at least 7p and uh, 7% of its now. Are you able to expand a little bit on, you say the revenues are complicated, but it, it, is it something that can be explained or is it just too intricate? Yeah, it, it's it's not explained very well. I wish I, wish I could. That's what I've been trying to uh, interpret their uh, reports. Um, I hope I can meet somebody. You know, it has been quite so far with, their, with all these face to face meetings. But yeah, I hope to hope to catch up with how they make the real money. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Thank you. And um, have you looked at others in the sector? So Gresham House Energy Storage Fund. Yeah, uh, actually, I had invested on the as well but uh, I think they don't pay as much dividend as, as Go Street Fund do so uh, I preferred this one more yeah and what's your expectation for the share price you know my target was uh, 120 and it, it, it did reach uh, but then uh, it did the placing and it dipped so yeah I think it's going to go beyond 120 so I'm hoping it'll go at least 120 very shortly and then <laughs> go rise up soon more after that. Many thanks, Shakti. We do have other questions, but we've run out of time. So thanks very much indeed. Damien, back to you. Thank you, Shakti. Um, it's nice to see another investment trust feature. Um, and this is certainly a solid contender if you're looking for steady income. But I do worry about the now premium um, as the share price will definitely suffer uh, if the sector falls out of favour. So let's hope it doesn't. But thank you. So that brings us to a close. Um, it was as fun as ever. Um, the sharp-eyed among you may have noticed that we enjoyed only nine pitches this evening. Um, that's down to one of our presenters pulling out at the last minute, which I understand, stuff happens. But it does bring me on to the fact that this will be the last slam for the, civil, for the foreseeable future. Um, the reason for this is very simple, a lack of people willing to present. Um, when we started these virtual slams, we hoped they would become self-sustaining with a reasonable fraction of viewers putting themselves forward to pitch an idea. Unfortunately, this hasn't happened. Uh, and with every slam, we find ourselves spending a lot of time pulling together a decent lineup, which is why some people have thankfully presented a number of times. Um, but this isn't sustainable. So there won't be another slam, I'm afraid, in the near future. Uh, it's possible we'll put one on at Christmas, maybe a Christmas special, and maybe there'll be a real world slam at somewhere like Mellow. Um, but basically, that's it. The series has come to a close. Uh, so with that in mind, I hope you all enjoyed the presentation this evening. Um, I have learned a great deal, as usual, about some companies, and I hope you have too. Um, please join me in thanking all the presenters for giving up their time to entertain and inform. Um, I would also like to thank Tamsin and Tim from PI World for going above and beyond, um, as ever, and also thanks to Sam from Stockopedia for him to organise things. Um, all that remains really is to thank you all for logging on this evening um, and joining the conversation on Discord. It's very, been very entertaining. Um, I hope you all, you've all enjoyed this series of Stock Slams as much as we have. Um, so stay safe and good luck with your investments. Thank you. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.